Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you. And I want to remind you, as always, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. It does not constitute working with a licensed professional. Please seek that out in your area. Now, as as you're hearing this, we're going to be wrapping up the month of February, which of course is Black History Month. And if you've tuned in over the last few, now going on third year, uh, you know that for this month, we try to celebrate Black pride, Black history, and just Black excellence. And so wrapping up this month, we have a returning guest, and that is (laughs) Juby Aurelio Hedlick, is a Black poet or Black queer poet, storyteller, and author of the poetry collection Original Kink from a Sibling Rival Press, a recipient of the 2021 uh, Hostonic Book Award. He's a 2018 PEN, that's P-E-N, American Emerging Voices Fellow, and holds an MFA in creative writing for the University of Miami, <laughs> and has received support for his work with Yeddo. Um, Yado. Yes, Yado. Thank you. Uh, Malevolent Arts, the Fine Arts Work Center, the Palm Beach Poetry Festival, the Lamba Literature, and the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Jube and his poetry have been featured in Literary Hub, The Rumpus, the Bellato Poetry Journal, the Nimrod, Southern Humanities Review, Washington Square Review, PBS's News Hours, Briefs But Spectacular, and elsewhere. Jubilee lives with his husband in South Florida on Tequesta and Seminole lands, and he work, his work explores themes of masculinity, vulnerability, rage, and tenderness and joy. And he has just come out this February with a new book called Bound. And we're here today to talk more about this new piece of work. But of course, before we get into that, and if those of you have not heard our previous uh, interview, which came out actually for queer or queer months back in uh, June, I think it was 2021. Wow, time has flown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and this is three years of doing this podcast, going the third year of doing this podcast. Um, right. Why don't we have a little introduction of how did you get here for those who didn't hear the first one? And hopefully we'll go back and listen to that one. Right. Thank you, Perry, for having me here today. First of all, I was just telling you before this about how busy I am. And we were talking about how busy you are in the world. But one thing I always have time for is uh, conversations about my work, but about life more broadly. So I'm just happy to be here. As for how I started on the path of poetry, it's a bit odd, I think, but there's a million stories. So I'll just tell you mine. I did some writing in college and I don't think it was bad. And I got some early support or affirmation for the work I did. And that abruptly ended for me personally when I submitted my work for a competitive senior seminar in English that was focused on creative writing. I was not selected for that, 
And because I suppose I didn't have affirmation outside of college and not that much within college Mm -hmm. or pursuing a writing career, I chose to believe that my not being selected for that competitive workshop meant that I probably wasn't as good a writer as I had hoped I might be. So I didn't try to write again really for 20 odd years, although I never really let go of the desire. I tamped it down and tried to keep it at bay. But sometime in the early 2010s, I woke up with this desire to write a book about my father and we didn't have the best relationship. And I think I wanted to work some stuff out through the writing of that. And I tried initially in nonfiction. And it was not bad because I'm not a bad writer in any genre, but it didn't sing. It didn't have the spark I wanted it to have. And I knew that. And somebody I know suggested I take a poetry workshop. And I thought, that's the most ridiculous idea. I don't know anything about poetry. Why Mm -hmm. would I take a poetry workshop? And they kept insisting, kept insisting, kept insisting. And then I said, fine, I will take a poetry workshop. Because honestly, I didn't have any better ideas. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting where I wanted to be with nonfiction. And so I took a poetry workshop and fell in love, Mm -hmm. which was shocking to me. I thought I was one of those people who, quote unquote, didn't get poetry. But it sang. It immediately drew me in. And so I spent thousands of dollars, ran up credit card bills, taking workshops here, there, and everywhere, online, in person, different places around the country writing poetry, learning more about poetry. I read every piece of poetry I could get my hands on. And I wrote poetry. And I am sure the first two or 300 poems I wrote were trash, but I am lucky that the people I shared them with didn't say, these are trash, please stop. They said, this is so wonderful that you found this passion, keep going. And Mm -hmm. so I kept going. And I transitioned, and I think this is something a lot of writers go through. I think when we start writing, what we do is we imitate what we think is good, what we like, what we identify as moving us. And I was able at some point to transition from copying other writers to mimicking their their form or their topics, but putting the juby stamp on it. A lot of my writing is born of me saying, okay, this topic is interesting. How do I make that queer? Or how do I make that blacker? Um, Or just simply, how do I make that jubier? (laughs) So that's kind of my uh, long-winded story of how I came to poetry. And, you know, I'm just blessed to be where I am today. I thought after the first book, if I never write something else, I've accomplished this. And then the second book came, and it was stunning to me. I did not expect it at all. So I just feel blessed. So we'll talk about the second book in a second, but what comes to mind, and I think I said this last time, was also how much we're carrying all the wounds from the poetry we got had to read in high school. And even then, was that really good poetry for us to be able to understand what poetry means as opposed to... What right. it could be and what we could be through the use of right. poetry. Right. I, I'm lucky. I was exposed to some African-American poets 
from the black arts movement, which would have been the mm-hmm. 60s. Now I went to college in the 80s, so they weren't even contemporary then. But when I was in high school, um, and most of college, quite honestly, j- because I didn't get taught poets in class that were black poets. That sort of was the black student you bring close to class. I dealt with that same thing a lot of us deal with, which is that canon of poets that have long been dead or that have very little to do with my experience or that I found out later were actively um, subverting my experience. Um, Wallace Stevens, famous poet, also a famously racist person. Um, Walt Whitman, a queer poet, um, didn't have a lot to say about Black people in the time he was on Earth, which included the time of slavery. You know, Keats, Yeats, Whitman, E. e. Cummings, Shakespeare before, um, Lord Byron. They're just a whole bunch of uh, dead white men that we were taught were the icons of poetry, were definitive of what poetry should be. So later when I came across people like Gwendolyn Brooks and Lucille Clifton and Amiri Baraka and later poets even, and I discovered that I can write poetry in a voice that is familiar to me and legitimately call it poetry, it was a stunning thing. I had this experience in workshop, one of the early workshops when I, I think that was a definitive moment for me where I was talking to another woman who's a friend of mine, actually, still, but we had just met each other and we were in workshop and I was sharing a poem and she said to me, a young Latinx woman, she said, what are you trying to do with this poem? And I said, well, I'm writing a poem called America and it's, I'm trying to sort of do in my America poem what uh, Allen Ginsberg did in his. Now, Allen Ginsberg, Allen Ginsberg was a queer poet from the 60s. Sure. Um, interesting poem that he wrote. But she said to me, why are you writing Allen Ginsberg's poem? What's Juby's America poem supposed to be? Mm-hmm. And as obvious as that is, it was the first time I really thought, oh, oh, yeah, I should be writing in my voice. What are you doing? I don't need to write for Allen Ginsberg. He's long gone. I need to write for Juby. Um, and it's one of the valuable lessons I've learned over my writing career is that the more specific you are about your life, the more likely you are to connect with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are just people out there who are sharing your grief and your heartache and also your joy and your passion. And you don't reach them by trying to write the most generic poem possible. Nobody needs that. What they need is to hear you and connect with the parts of you they can or don't connect. And we have to be okay with that. We, I'm not writing to everybody. I'm not trying to write to everybody. I'm writing to some hypothetical person who needs to hear from Juby. Mm-hmm. And they are probably black. They are probably queer. They m- might be a woman, but I'm writing to that person. I'm not writing to the world. I'm writing right. to who, who needs what I write. So then, who are you writing to with Bound? Well, the other person I write to, other than my hypothetical self, and I'm one of the reasons I'm so busy this semester, but this is a joy, is I'm teaching a graduate poetry workshop in the program mm. where I went at University of Miami, and it's been wonderful so far. But we've been having a conversation because one of their other professors 
told them they needed to be thinking about audience. And I told them that that needed to be clarified and that when you are in the midst of writing, you should not at all be thinking about audience. Your audience is you. You need to figure out what you need to say for you. And after you write it, you can figure out maybe who it will resonate with. Mm-hmm. But we're we're not editing ourselves for an audience. We're writing our truth and hoping, praying, being confident even that that truth will connect with somebody. So I really feel like when I write, I'm writing towards Black queer folks. And sometimes more enlightened queer folks can be a part of that. Sometimes more enlightened Black folks who aren't queer can be a part of that. But I very specifically know that I'm writing to Black queer folks most of the time. I write in a specific voice that I think sort of very easily code switches from very formal and almost academic to round the way on the corner uh, in the club or in the bodega. Um, And I love doing that because that's sort of how I live my life also. That's Mm. how I speak in the world. So it works well for my poetry, but that's what I'm running to. People like me, because I always feel like part of what my project is, is to write us into the world in ways Mm -hmm. we haven't been given space to be in the world before. So do we get to express our rage? Hopefully. But do we also get to imagine love and joy and pleasure and sex um, and sensation in ways that for a lot of people, they think that's a blasphemy. We absolutely do. So this new book has, you know, a lot of sexy, grown and sexy poems, a lot of silly mm-hmm. poems, a lot of funny poems, but also the very political rage. Po- Actually, I think all of my work is political. I think <laughs> trying to manifest a world where you can be your sexy, leathery, kinky, queer, black self is already a political statement because so much of the world doesn't want that to even exist. So, yeah. Very much so. Uh, believe me, uh, haiku on appropriation is an amusing one. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, I was very pleased with myself the day I came up with that because sometimes it, my favorite thing is to say a lot in a few words. Mm-hmm. And for your listeners, I'll go ahead and just recite it because it's, it's very short, so it'll be over quickly. It's called haiku on appropriation. And the words are, the only white folk who may enter Black heaven is Tina Marie. And I love that because I think a lot about what it means for, I think a lot of us who are not white think a lot more than white people do about what it means to be an ally, a true ally, Mm -hmm. a meaningful, supportive ally a down-in-the-dirt ally, a doesn't-run-when-it-gets-hard ally. And I think a lot about how people appropriate our art. There's another poem in the book called Banjo that was born of the fact that, you know, I was way older than I ought to have been when I learned that the banjo was born in Africa. Because in this country, uh, and in this moment, you know, Black folks are releasing country music and being told that we don't have a right to claim it when really it was born of our voices and our instruments. So it's a fascinating discussion to me. Um, But I think a lot about that. And so I think about who appropriates 
who does it feel like isn't appropriate our stuff who meaningfully loves it and is a student of it and that music is really what brings them joy and and manifests in their soul and sort of just is the light of their life and i thought about a lot of artists who are not black um who operate sort of in the r&b jazz Mm -hmm. in general space and when i think of people who i feel like loved what they did and were intentional about living it i think of tina marie so that's Mm -hmm. where that poem was born from um i don't think there are a lot more i could point to that i wouldn't say sort of like, I can't tell you that I think Justin Timberlake isn't appropriate. I'm never going to say that because um, uh, I feel like he might be. Um, but also, um, I've never forgiven him for Janet. So, fuck it. <laughs> I, right. I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm supposed to be able to swear on your podcast. So maybe bleep that. But yeah. Uh, okay. Given, some of the, given the fact that we've had other topics about queerdom and kink, we do have an explicit right. tag. And okay, there, certain, there is a certain truth to that. And I'll admit that, yeah, there's some aspect of, yeah, there's some, some poems in here we're not reading on the air. But, right. Uh, but, uh, right. you know, I think there there's that aspect of that, being able to speak to that real sense of that visceral right. feeling. And we never want to right. shy away from that when we're doing their therapy. And it's also right. one of the things that we sort of can inherently see to what you're saying about those who love it and those who appropriate it exactly there's and it just started to feel really obvious like okay who is walking the walk talking the talk living the life and who sees an opportunity to make some money and gain some notoriety and i feel like those are very different people um with very different experiences and so i have room for one of those sets of folks and the other mm-hmm. uh, i I don't so much um, because I feel like if I, what I am to you is an opportunity, then you're not really vested in my, in my um, mission in life, which is to create that space where I can live the way I want to and be safe and happy mm-hmm. and healthy and thrive. Cause that's the goal, right? Um, mm-hmm. So maybe I, I, I've been writing a lot of nonfiction recently and I'm not ready to share that yet, but I've been, it's, been illuminating in a way I didn't expect it to be. And one of the things that came up, and I will come back when that book's out, God willing, mm-hmm. and talk mm-hmm. to you about this. But one of the things that just started coming up for me in this way specifically is I've been thinking a lot about how much, and I, this is not new, it's not brilliant, other people said it, but I've been thinking personally about how much Black bodies are under surveillance and how much mm-hmm. my body is under surveillance. But more than that, how much throughout life, I have literally contorted myself to make other people comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the poems in my first book, it, it was born of an experience where I was walking down the street um, and behind me, I just heard like sirens and then the whoosh of a police car doing like 90 miles per hour passing me because, mm-hmm. you know, they were on their way to make a caller. Who knows what kind of caller? Hopefully nobody was hurt. Um, but I literally stopped and stiffened when that car passed. I just stood still for like five seconds and then it was gone and I kept going. There was a white woman, though, maybe 50 feet in front of me who was on the phone who was unaffected. Mm-hmm. She just kept walking. And maybe the most that happened to her was the siren drowned her out and she was annoyed. 
but literally her movement, she didn't lose a step, she didn't falter, she didn't jump. And so I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which Black folks, maybe queer folks too, probably especially mm-hmm. trans and disabled folks, a lot of folks who live in the world who are not white, who are not um, cisgender, who are not heterosexual, have to sort of limit themselves literally physically so that they don't take up too much space so that they lean out of the way when other people are passing because to be in the way is a problem. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it resonates for a lot of people. Not that some wouldn't actually want us to hear us sit and discuss it. Right. And it also, again, it comes back to the difference between those who appropriate and those who actually love us. Right, exactly, exactly. That is very true. Um, so uh, what I try to do in my writing um, is give myself and therefore the reader a vehicle to express these things, but also a, um, an opportunity to imagine past these things, the world mm-hmm. where I can be as free as I want to be, the world where we can love the way we want to with abandon. Mm-hmm. Um the world where we can be silly and sexy and kinky and mm-hmm. not have people um, try to curtail that. And I live in Florida. So literally every day, the state government is trying to uh, erase who I am. Um, and not that it does, doesn't happen in other places, mm-hmm. but Florida is a particularly prime example at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, working against that constant. Well, especially since, and again, not to get, there is a certain degree of politicalness into it, that they're trying to wipe away multiple parts of our intersectional identity. Right, exactly. Um, There's the don't say gay bill. There is the eradication of critical race theory that has gone farther than eradicating critical race theory. Because first of all, I am a proponent of critical race theory, but that's not all of black history. But even allowing space for black history as we understand it we've got presidential candidates who cannot articulate will not articulate that the civil war was about slavery they are mm-hmm. literally rewriting history in ways that erase our struggles mm-hmm. um um and like you said intersectionally whether that's across gender or sexuality or ethnicity they're trying to write a story that sanitizes all the trauma that they inflicted upon us. Um, but at the same time, it makes it so that we either assimilate or, or disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch. Um, I used to be angrier about it than I am, but now I kind of feel, and maybe it's the writing part. Maybe the writing part gives me the outside seat. Now I kind of just feel like I'm an observer, almost as if I'm a sociologist just watching the dynamics play out and trying to identify them and point them out to people. Now, I do that through poetry. Um, other people do it through other mechanisms. But it really feels like right this second, and I'm, historically this has been important, but I'm having a different understanding of how important it is uh, to use art as a vehicle. Because when they're erasing history, where else are we going to document it? We're going to document it in our writing and on film, and maybe even in our dance and our visual art, because that's what art can do. It can preserve the stories that otherwise would be 
not only missed, but maybe literally erased, intentionally erased. That's what we're fighting against all the time. Which brings me to immediately to one of the poems you wrote for Bound, which is Ways to Spot an Invasive Species. Well, that was a fun one for me. Um, yeah, I, if I were more prepared, would literally have the book in front of me. It's not far away. Um, if you want me to read it, I could read it. Um, but I can also just talk about it, whichever you think makes more or sense. I'll read it and we can talk about it. And then after that, we'll take a break. How's that sound? Sure. That sounds wonderful. Right. I love it when people read my poems. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So ways to spot an invasive species. Challenge it to a word association game. Say goat, and if it counters with cheese, instead of curry, you might have an, uh, an overgrowth. Say banana or bay, write quick and wait for leaf or silence to follow. Say ferment, and if it first thought is not kimchi or pig's feet, but craft beer, make sure you pull that peckish weed out by its root. Ask where you are at. No, Ask where you can get the best local roti, uh, mufung empanadas. If you don't know right. the answer yourself, might be you, you who's out of the place. It must be said, though, these weeds grow from seeds that float on the winds of the whisperer campaigns. They'll do what they must to resist being pulled. So try never to munch, to, sorry, never to munch on your chicharrones while bird watching in a park. Wash the curry stains from your fingers before you fall asleep around an ivy. Don't permit anything within 200 clicks of a pistol. When you go jogging for the love of a return trip, mind you don't slip through the cracks. Mind you don't barrel into a cracker. Mind your manners. Mind your mouth. Mind your melanin. Yep. So I, I wrote that poem. Um, I love all the wordplay in it. First of all, you know, barrel into a cracker mm -hmm. brings up ideas of cracker barrel, but also there are very specific references in there. I don't remember who it was by name, but you know, when I say, mind you don't fall asleep around an Ivy, it's because at Yale, um, there was a young woman and this may have happened more than once mm -hmm. in Ivy League school. But I remember a story from a few years ago when a young woman fell asleep in the common room at Yale and security asked her to leave. Like, it did not occur to them she was a student first. Um, but the mind you don't barrel into a cracker is about Ahmad Arbery. Arbery. Li yeah. li literally um, having, you know, running into, figuratively speaking, those crackers who mm -hmm. then murdered him. Um, and who were so surveilling him. And who were surveilling him? We are under surveillance so constantly. I mean, you know, I think back to the first person who registers with me in this way. Um, it, and it's Trayvon, which happened not mm -hmm. too far from where I'm sitting right now in Southern Florida. Literally, uh, some random, mediocre, racist white person thought that they had a right to surveil him. And so they did and perceived he was a threat and therefore murdered him. So we just, and, and his great sin, Trayvon, was that he refused to shrink to the size of this man's 
um, surveillance of him to the idea of what this man thought he should be. He did not defer. He dared to be himself. And now he's not with us because somebody thinks they have a right to dictate how big we get to be in the world. Mm-hmm. He didn't lean away. So that's right. Right. And that's always hard to, to process that somebody would want that. And that there are appeal to people who even within our own communities who are more than willing right. to then shun others for not being willing to lean away. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. So we're going to let that sink in for a bit, folks. And we'll be back shortly to continue our talk about Bound by Juby Aurelio Headley here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Barry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, and we'll be back soon. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Welcome back, folks, to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Juby Aurelio Headley, who has re- recently come out with his second poem collection called Bound. And now he's going to read for us one that we mentioned a little earlier called Banjo. Take yeah. it away. <clears throat> Banjo. It's commonly understood, though they may have the history, that the earliest earliest of us to be grafted onto this stolen land carried not with us but our scars and our memories. Often, these were one and the same. But when they weren't, when they weren't, we remembered our memories and birthed spinning iterations of what had been back home into what was needed here. Context, as ever, was key. The banjo, for example, 
a great, 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 great unto the Juneteenth power, great grandchild of an instrument of exchange, born of independent minds in Senegambia and in the land of Wasulu music too, with cousins in Persia and China and Japan and Morocco, but none to speak of from the lands of the folks whose offspring stay trying to claim it nowadays as their own. It's a matter of conjecture whether they stole it from us because they understood its power or because they didn't. What we know, what is engraved upon our every bone, the exercise of pleasure as revolution, the incantatory vapors it raises, they steady us. We breathe deep for all those what couldn't. Banjo. Banjo. Such a piece. Thank you. Thank you. I um, just wanted to write something about how I recognize that the banjo was born, that we created it, our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Because again, I think that that can be the role of art to sort of codify stories that would be lost otherwise. And I worry that a hundred years from now, folks won't know that anymore. Um, and I'm not a historian. Maybe I could become one, but I'm not today, but I can write a poem that captures some mm -hmm. of that. So mm -hmm. some of what I try to do sometimes is that, is that project. Make mm -hmm. sure our, our stories aren't lost. Mm-hmm. Which is part of that aspect, not just of reclaiming our history, which gets very much into the uh, Dinkra Sankofa about what we've remembered, but also right. what we're going to go forward with, too. Right. Very, very, very good point. You know, because um, it's not it's not just history. It's living current experience. The banjo still exists. There are black country artists and black banjo players who within their field are renowned as we speak. So illuminating them to the world as well, illuminating not just the history of this instrument, but its present and its future. Because the banjo is not going anywhere either. It's going to be a an important part of music going forward. So, Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I, I have one of those albums, especially. It was um, Our Native Daughters, which is uh, love listening to that album. Right, right, right. Um, is that Rhiannon Giddens? Yep. Okay, good. I got it right. Um, yes. I, I just want to write this poem. Um, I started it in a place, and it was it was kind of with her, and then I went down other paths to find other artists. But in my research, I sort of fell in love with some music, and hers was some of it. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit of those. Yeah. Right. So some of the other pieces in here too, um, before we get into our next one, I want you to read, right. Um, right. the, going back to what we've talked about with the idea that we're writing this more for black and black and queer individuals, um, right. what has it been like trying to market to that? Oh, um, I am sure I should have what will sound like a professional answer. I don't because I don't worry about marketing mm -hmm. at all. Um, 
I don't market directly to anybody. What I I write because I want to talk to people. I want to have conversations with people like this conversation. Mm -hmm. So after I write, I try to connect with with folks on podcasts and I try to read at bookstores and I try to go to to literature and writing and poetry festivals. But most of that is in my mind, it's not to art market the book. It's to have the one person who might like the, the poem show up and then I can talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe because I approach it that way, marketing, if that's what it is, is a joy because I don't worry about getting page inches anywhere or how much it sells. It's a poetry book. There isn't, or there are maybe five poetry books that sell the way commercial fiction judges a success. Most mm-hmm. poetry books only sell a few hundred copies. So I already, I start off knowing that sales are never going to be uh, what drives a, a, the goal, never going to be mm-hmm. what drives um, a book of poems. And so I just try to take my poems and read them to folks and share them with folks and maybe have conversations, not just about the poems, but like we're doing about the themes and topics that they call mm-hmm. to mind and see where we go from there. Um, mm-hmm. It's just my way of connecting with the other um, like-minded souls in the world, black and or queer, and or kinky, and or a few other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I live for the conversations. I really, 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 really do, because um, that's it's not it's almost as fun as the writing of the poems. Mm-hmm. Quite honestly. Well, so and, yeah, yeah, and that's sometimes a subject to matter that also comes up in its own way when working with right. clients is the standpoint of how many people are <laughs> focusing on the destination as opposed right. to recognizing the journey. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. I mean, yeah. And so much of what I'm also hearing you talk about is there's so much about where you're also enjoying the journey and you're enjoying the right. journey with who you're talking with. Right, right. Um, I'm not sure what a poetry destination should be. Um, so it's all about the journey to me. I used to have a big problem writing poetry where I needed to tie up the ending, but that is not the the project of poetry at all to mm-hmm. give you a neat and tidy ending. I just need to let the poem end where the poem needs to end. And mm-hmm. it's made it a lot. It's really enriched um, the way I write poetry um, to know that my goal isn't to give you resolution. I'm not, trying to give you a resolution that may be, if anything, trying to get you to reflect on a moment or an experience and see how that resonates for you or doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'm always trying to do. So those conversations are the parts that are exciting for me. Beautiful. So why don't we go on to our uh, next little poem, which um, for those of you who have seen this first movie, which I believe uh, Dr. Uh, Mercedes and I did have a conversation on. Right. Let's go to Wakanda. Right. And this poem is called Njadaka's Appeal. Or, um, And I remember that scene in, in Black Panther where um, he walks in, and I think it's the white CIA agent who says it's Killmonger and he turns and he says that's not my name because mm-hmm. in that movie they don't actually say his name again I had to go do research to the original comic series to figure mm-hmm. out what his real name was 
And I just found that a fascinating concept. I mean, it's something we talk about in the Black community specifically all the time. You don't call somebody out their name. That means a very specific thing. That means a thing that could get your ass beat after school or on the corner. You do not call people out their name. You know, it's, you know, and especially if you're sometimes, if you're a man calling a woman out their name. But either way, I that's how I thought of it. And I thought also that there are ways in which, and this is what Hollywood needs to do sometimes, it, ways in which Njadaka is the villain of the film story. But in terms of what a project of Black liberation might look like, he's not really a villain. He's really the person who cares about liberation in ways that other people were blind to. Um, so I wanted to humanize him a bit, um, and highlight his struggle, which is kind of the approach I took with this poem. Mm-hmm. So I'll read it, I guess, and share it with you. It's called Njadaka's Appeal. Hey, auntie, can you spare me a homeland? The one I left didn't gift me my mother's name. Every word I'm fighting for. My native tongue, my immortal. Hey, auntie, let us carve me a tongue to lick these wounds scriptured on my skin. They sting, they linger, they read as abscess or absence. I never learned the difference. Hey, auntie, maybe you could fix your face to love me. I know I spit chaos, but if you cut out my tongue, I will write you a psalm, a shadow, a love song. Hey, auntie, why do men metaphors mothers into countries, into tongues? I wouldn't know. I've never had a country. I mean, a mother. I mean, a home. I mean, a tongue. Part of me wrote this poem from a very sassy place. And I very specifically started it in that sassy place and went through sort of, and if you read the poem in the book, you'll see it starts off with an exclamation point, hey, auntie, and moves through a period and then ends up with a question. It's kind of... And Jadaka humbling himself to maybe try to connect with family, family Mm -hmm. that if you remember his role in the movie and you remember the role of his family, um, Mm -hmm. he was not welcome to be a part of and that he was hidden from for for decades, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But that line in the movie where he shows up in Wakanda and turns to Angela Bassett's character and says, hey, auntie, is what is 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 to me one of the gayest mm-hmm. things that has ever happened on screen, and I am not. I am just convinced there is somebody involved in Wakanda building, or building of that movie that was like just the draggiest person in the history of of <laughs> like drag and balls and Vogue and the nineties and eighties before it. Because Hey Auntie is just the gayest line, and so I had to start there. But then it became a rumination or 
almost a, just a yearning, a, a request, uh, not quite a begging, but him reaching to ask somebody to open themselves to the possibility that he might not be the villain they saw him as. And I don't know if they do. That's not the point of the poem. The point of the poem is to remind folks he is a human with some human yearnings um, mm -hmm. and that he is not, no matter how much you might want him to be, and no matter how much the movie at least might paint him to be, he is not the literal villain that you're used to trying to paint. Mm -hmm. So you got to think more expansively about who he is in that world or in the world. Mm-hmm. Which is, and even if we're not looking at the idea of villain, it's like, what do we paint for ourselves as people right. living in this time, right. surviving in this right. world, needing right. the connection, not just with our own people, but with the world itself? Right. It's, I also think his, his story is, is, is a story of us in so many ways, I think, to George Floyd. And I think to how frustrating it is as black folks for us to have to hear things like you're, you, what you're saying would be more compelling if they weren't rioting. Um, you know, it was, I believe Martin Luther King who said the riot, and maybe it was somebody else, but there is that saying the riot is the language of the unheard. Mm -hmm. People don't seem to get that, you know, they understand their violence. They don't understand our violence that doesn't even approximate their violence. You get to host an insurrection um, in the nation's capital and literally threaten the lives of U.S. senators and congressmen. Um, but we break some, it, it must be something about capitalism too, we break some dishes and steal some TVs and somehow we are qualitatively worse mm. um, um, because that's how we express our age. Um, it's just fascinating. Oh yeah. Oh, even um, I know there's the one of those another examples of those things is the movie that's coming out later. I think this summer, Ungentlemanly Tactics, talking oh, about the true okay. stories uh, of World War II and the fact that oh yeah, the British basically had to go and get the people who didn't function like them to protect their mm -hmm. asses. Right. Yeah. And that notion of just in some regards, what is that social notion of what we're supposed to be doing, what we're acting doesn't always play itself out well and right. doesn't lay itself right. out. Uh, that's sometimes even what comes up when we're sitting with, I'm sitting in therapy with people in that standpoint of, is there an element that their blackness is not sitting well with people? Is it their queerness right. that's not sitting well with people? Is it their neurodiversion, sorry, neurodiversity that is also not sitting well with people? Right. Yeah. And how Makes do we sense. go through that exclamation to that period to that question? Right, exactly. Right. That is the question. Mm -hmm. And equally, are we asking them or are we asking ourselves? Right. I, and that's a yes, because both. Mm -hmm. uh, as a poet, I don't know what I'm doing if I'm not interrogating myself first and foremost. Uh, there's something about authenticity that's nearly impossible if you're not asking yourself the hard questions first. And there's something about authenticity that if it doesn't exist in the poem, 
makes that poem less than a poem. So mm-hmm. if we're not willing to invest that poem with authenticity, which means if we're not willing to ask ourselves the hard questions, and this is probably true of more than poetry, it's probably true of all art. Mm-hmm. If that's not where art's coming from, then why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. What is the point? So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's both said, places. And can be said for therapy is that we are looking at our lives and right. examining them. And that does mean introspection, and introspection does require us not always to be trying to tout our horns, our own oh, horns. Yeah. It's maybe it's time to take these things out from under us so that we can right. really look at it. Right. And not everybody's ready to do that. Not everyone feels comfortable. Right. Very 100%. Afraid to do that. Afraid. Afraid ass afraid. I mean, mm-hmm. I think about the fact it took me a long time to come to therapy because, and I think you've exactly outlined why, I was not ready to do the level of inch. What is the point of therapy if we're not going to do introspection? If we recognize there's some issues we need to work through, if we recognize there's some traumas we experience and that we want to try to heal from, if we're not going to dig into them, how are we going to get to the other side? Um, there's a, one of the line in the poem called Once in this book, um, which is has been said in a million ways by different people, but the only way out is through. You just gotta, you gotta dig into that stuff mm-hmm. and do the hard work of unpacking it, as they call it. You know, that, they call it baggage for a reason. You gotta unpack it um, and, and just lay shit out and, and really reflect on what it has done to you or how you were complicit in maintaining X, Y, or Z. Um, yeah, therapy is hard. Um, mm-hmm. there are days I do not like it. Um, but it has been helpful in, in many, many ways. And one of the ways it's been helpful specifically with my writing is it reminds me, um, how much I need to invest in doing that kind of introspection, not just for me as a human to be a better person and maybe friend and certainly husband. But as a poet, it helps me be a better poet, too, I think. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, and I went to um, a writing residency uh, about a year ago where we fell into a conversation about the fact that most of the writers who were there felt that their therapy helped them be better writers. So that's mm-hmm. something they think about constantly. Um, and I think most, if not all the people in that conversation, there were like eight or 10 of us. Um, actually one person was a therapist actually. Um, <laughs> but the rest of us were pretty convinced that we needed to be engaged in therapy to do the kind of writing to the standard we wanted to do it. So, yeah. And as a therapist, there's ways where. Uh, poetry, doing poetry is part of how we help our clients and how we also right. unwind from sometimes the vicarious trauma that comes with working with people, right. which is sure. one of those also realities of where we're seeing therapists burning out and leaving right. the field and lessons yes. for our, in our, our field about how better we need to be able to take care of ourselves right. to be here to do that. Right. So I think there's a great place for us to be wrapping up. Um, I have one poem that I've picked out that we're going to read and we'll 
uh, as our closing. But before we do that, okay. where can people find you to find more of the book to or have those occasions for you guys to sit and have conversations with them? Right. I have a website, and it's pretty easy. It's www.justjubi.com. And that's the word just followed by my name, J-U-B-I, justjubi.com. And you can contact me through my website and learn more about where I'm going and what I'm doing and what I'm writing. All righty. Beautiful. And so we'll close with Jack. Oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> oh, Yes. Well, Jack was an exercise. One of the things, and I don't know how this relates to therapy. Maybe we'll get to this in the last minutes, or maybe you'll think about it and tell me later. But one of the things that sometimes helps poetry is the idea of constraints, putting limitations on how you read it and discuss it. So this is a rhyming sonnet uh, mm. that somehow just seemed to fit this particular story. Mm-hmm. So... um. I don't think it would work as well if it didn't have the constraints of needing to be a sonnet with a certain amount of syllables per line, et cetera. Gotcha. Well, from the but, mechanics yeah. side of it, yeah. But from right, exactly. the visuals, from the, the story that's told here, I think it's a very good one. Oh, well, thank you. All right. Jack. Well, then I, I will read y'all Jack. Please do. And read us out. Okay. The summer I turned 11, they sent... Read banished me to live, die with granny. She who'd lost six kids before dad was bent on saving or saging or scaring me square. So she summoned the Obia man to read my cards for two bottles of Jack, a blunt, and 20 bucks US. He drank the first bottle right then. His jaw got slack, but that didn't slow his slick. The long con had bled Granny before, not with a knife, but with hope. I caught the jack of spades on the flop. For her, that was it. He blessed my life. Granny's thin lips turned let go of that grim, but I know a hijack when I see him. We'll let folks ponder on that and its message within until we can meet again for our your next book. Thank you. I will give you a ring when that comes out. <laughs> oh, definitely. I'll be looking forward and happy to have another conversation with you if we don't see each other okay. before then. Right. All righty, folks. Well, this has been Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. And this concludes our uh Multiple episodes for February for Black History, Black Excellence, Black Pride Month. So please continue to celebrate being Black, being Black and queer, being Black and trans all year round. And let the banjos play. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, For another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.